Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 62, Revelation, The Poverty of Riches. And in this episode, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Jesus is addressed to the final one of the seven churches in Revelation to the church in Laodicea. And you may be, if you're a little bit familiar with Revelation, you may know the church at Laodicea to be the lukewarm church. And we will talk about a little bit about what that means. And we will wrap up our time looking at what it means to be faithful witnesses to Jesus and why it is that um, when we gather our understanding of the way all seven of these churches work together, we get a really good picture of what Jesus is calling us to do, as well as a really clear indication of the way that Babylon and the world's system fights against the church actually carrying out its faithful witness. And so Jesus will have some stern words for this particular church. It is actually the only one of the seven where nothing positive is given. And you may be surprised to find out why. So let's just jump right into it. As we begin this week's episode, I'm just going to read Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and whites, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as we begin this episode, I would like to give you a little background information about the city of Laodicea. And as I shared last week, that the city of Philadelphia had experienced um, some traumatic earthquakes. And in fact, Jesus' promise to the faithful Christians in Philadelphia is that he would make them pillars in the temple of his God, that he would make them permanent, stable structures in the midst of a city that knew nothing about stable structures because everything they had come to count on had been rattled quite literally by an actual earthquake, but it would interest you to know that the city of Laodicea also received traumatic effects and damages from similar earthquakes to, to the ones that affected Philadelphia. And this Laodicean church, however, um, was so self-sufficient and so proud of their monetary wealth and so capable within themselves of supporting themselves and sustaining themselves they actually um, declined disaster relief from the Roman emperor and decided that they could recover entirely of their devastation with their own resources without a single bit of outside assistance. 
Um, in fact, the church and the uh, the church picks up on this, but the city itself had everything they needed. Um, they were completely self-contained. And as I was studying this passage this week, um, I did come across a, a couple helpful paragraphs from Dennis Johnson's book, The Triumph of the Lamb. <clears throat> Excuse me. And instead of trying to recreate what he has to say, I'm just going to read for you a few paragraphs that will help you kind of get the feel of of this city. Here's what Dennis Johnson says. Laodicea was a prominent center of banking and commerce. And after the earthquake, some of its wealthy citizens funded the construction or reconstruction of such public structures as a stadium, a gymnasium, heated and covered walkways and paths, and massive new city gates and towers. Laodicea was also known for textile production, especially black woolen products. Among its cultural assets was a medical school founded by Zeuxis, a disciple of Herophilus of Chalcedon, a leading dogmatic physician of the 3rd century BC who is known to have written on ophthalmology, or the study of the eyes. Ancient sources mention a Phrygian powder that was used to make eye salve, and the medical school at Laodicea was probably involved in developing this as well as other pharmaceuticals. With its banks its medical center, and its textile industry, Laodicea hardly seemed to be poor, blind, and naked. The city's self-sufficient affluence was mirrored in the church, which Jesus rebukes for its boast, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, and for its blindness to its own destitution. This is the only church about which Jesus has nothing good to say. Laodicea's boast in its wealth reveals how thoroughly seduced this church has been by the harlot Babylon, who enriches the earth's merchants with her immoral wealth, and who boasts, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and mourning I will never see. Now this, I think, is a really helpful introduction, and it's helpful for a number of reasons. The first is it reminds us and just gives us a little bit of historical documentation regarding the self-sufficiency and the interior wealth that the city of Laodicea actually obtained. And then it also highlights for us their textile industry, their banking industry, and their medical school. Excuse me. These were things that the Laodicean um, city members prided themselves on. Look at what we can accomplish. We are in the leading, we are on the cutting edge of ophthalmology. We're on the cutting edge of medical advancement. We have these textiles that are envied by other people. We have so much money within our banking and commerce industry and our trade with other cities that we don't even need the emperor's help when a, when a traumatic earthquake, you know, rattles our city to the core. And so this particular church In Laodicea, of course, being Laodiceans themselves, had had a difficult time separating the call on their life to follow a crucified Messiah, to follow a rejected and poor um, Jesus. In fact, had continued to believe that the signs of their wealth and their independence and their self-sufficiency was something to boast about. And it's it's, uh, mainly for this reason that Jesus actually has some harsh words for the church. And this is why I said in the introduction that the reason Jesus has harsh words might surprise you, and it is precisely here. It's precisely in the self-sufficiency that this church had used as evidence in their own minds of thinking 
that they were now blessed by God because of how self-sufficient they were. And yet what they fail to realize is that when they need no help from anyone and grow to receive no help from anyone, it becomes virtually impossible not to extend that same attitude and mindset toward Jesus. And I want you to hear me. When we do not know our need for Jesus, but instead view him as simply the one who's pointing us in the right direction or the one who's applauding our best efforts or the one who is simply standing off aloof and and approving or disapproving of how well we obey and how well we serve and how well we love, then we will fail in our witness to him because we are not capable, nor have we ever been asked to go out on our own and to be self-sufficient to the exclusion of being dependent upon him. And this thrusts us all the way back into the first few messages and, and episodes of this podcast, and that is to be human means to be dependent upon God. And here the Laodiceans are quite literally boasting about the fact that they do not need anything from anyone. They say out loud, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Well, part of the I need nothing applies in their own understanding of whether or not they need Jesus in their midst and who he's going to prove himself to be in their midst. And in John chapter 15, Jesus doesn't mince any words, but he says for us to abide in him and that he will abide in us for apart from him, we can do nothing. And here the Laodicean Christians are proudly boasting that they don't need anything. They need nothing. Well, Jesus, if he's going to remain faithful and true as he's referred to as the faithful and true witness, um, he's going to need to be our everything. And yet for churches that do not see their need for him are not going to be able to be faithful in their witness to him because they are not going to know how to properly extend the compassion and the health and the life-giving resources that they have to receive from Jesus to anyone outside of their community. And this is precisely the reason why we have this really interesting phrase, the lukewarm phrase, as I referenced in the introduction, Jesus rebuking this church and their works because they are neither cold nor hot. He says in verse 15, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And then he proceeds to say why it is that this is the case. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing. And you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But for a city like Laodicea, who is so incredibly self-sufficient, independent and independently wealthy and needs no help from anybody else and prides themselves on this fact, it would interest you to know that Laodicea, where it was positioned, was an excellent location for trade and commerce between major cities, but it was not near any main water source. And actually, the water that was in the city of Laodicea had to be through aqueduct systems. It had to be pumped into the city from other places. And, um, you know, Paul, Paul actually writes a letter in the New Testament to the church at Colossae. And Colossae was not very far away 
from Laodicea. In fact, Colossae um, was known for its really, really cold, refreshing, fresh springs. I'm not sure if you've ever experienced a spring. Um, I was a part of one in Florida a number of years ago. It was a ton of fun. It was a very, very clear river, but there was a certain pot, a spot, it, area where a lot of people were swimming, and you could go down at the very bottom and with your feet feel this freezing cold spring bubbling up from under the ground. Um, incredibly cold, and it felt fantastic because it was in Florida, and it was probably 100 degrees, which it almost always is there, but it, in the summer, it was 100 degrees, and we're swimming in this river, which felt good enough, but this freezing cold spring under the ground pumping up freezing cold water was unbelievably refreshing, and it felt so good. Well, there was another city that sort of forms a triangle between Laodicea and Colossae, and it was a city known as Hierapolis. And Hierapolis actually has these incredibly hot springs, um, bubbling up hot. You know, you, you may, I have never personally experienced one of these. I, I wish I could, and I've seen pictures and watched videos of places where similar things happen under the ground, except instead of pumping up freezing cold water, um, it's hot. And some of the advancements going on in Hierapolis at this time involved um, medical advancements because of their um, hot springs, people thought that they had healing properties and, and they believed, and you actually can do this today. I mean, we still, you know, sit in saunas or take a hot bath or we, we put ourselves under a steam in a steam room and it kind of cleanses the sinuses. You know, it has small, um, benefits, that sort of thing. But here's the idea. You have the hot springs, the, the medicinally curing, healing, comforting springs of Hierapolis, and you have the cold, refreshing, beneficial, um, you know, cool water of Colossae. And in Laodicea, a city that wants to be completely self-sufficient, that is self-sufficient in every other area, wants to also, and needs, quite literally, to have water so that you can live. You know, you can't function without it. And so they built these incredible aqueduct systems, no doubt with their own money probably, to pump the water in from these other areas. Well, if you pump in freezing cold water but it has to travel through aqueducts for miles before it reaches your city, what temperature do you think that freezing cold Colossae water will be by the time it reaches Laodicea? That's right. It's going to be lukewarm. And if you stretch your aqueducts in the other direction and you reach out to Hierapolis where they have their incredibly, incredibly hot springs and you pump hot, hot water miles and miles through aqueduct systems all the way to Laodicea, what temperature is it going to get when it reaches you? That's right. It's going to be lukewarm. And here's the picture that Jesus is using. He is not saying, as I have heard numerous times before, hey, you need to be on fire for me. You need to be passionate for me. You need to be hot. You need to be, you know, Christians that just, the, the, the fires are burning and, and you just need to be outspoken and passionate. But if you're not going to be passionate and outspoken, then you might as well just be ice cold and distant and, you know, don't either be on fire for me or don't, don't focus on me at all. And I don't know why it is that people have been drawn to that view. Maybe it's because they don't know the historical context. Maybe they don't know the geographical context. I'm not really sure. But I cannot fathom why on earth Jesus would ever tell a church, if you're not going to be passionate for me, be ice cold and, you know, 
disconnected entirely. Like that, that actually doesn't make any sense. Instead, what does make sense is that here's this church that because of their self-sufficiency and because everything they stand to offer the world and one another comes from them, it comes from within them, it is not hot springs of healing and and encouragement and and comfort and protection for anybody in their community and it is also not cold and refreshing and satisfying and a breath of fresh air for anybody either instead what this church in their attempt to be lampstands for Jesus and what this church is actually offering the world is a pathetic disgusting despicable not hot not cold, some stagnant, pathetic excuse for water, tepid, right in the middle, that is not healing and calming and comforting on one side or refreshing or cooling or satisfying on the other. They're being nothing. They're absolutely being nothing. It's like offering somebody a lukewarm glass of lemonade on a hot summer day. Gross. Or offering someone a lukewarm coffee on a cold winter day. Gross. It's either hot or it's cold, one is refreshing when it is when they are weary, a weary traveler. And, and Jesus uses this examples here, talking about giving a cup of cold water to someone in my name. Like this is the idea. It's it's like the cold water coming from Colossae. Or then you take the, the damp cloth that is hot and you lay it over the head of somebody who isn't feeling well. Like these are things that we do. This is who the church is supposed to be in a culture. And this church is so obsessed and priding themselves so much on being able to accomplish everything Jesus has asked them to do within themselves that the best they can give the world is the pathetic excuse for drinking water that they receive from these outside resources. And so Jesus says what you and I would say if we put something like that in our mouth, gross, I'm going to spit this out of my mouth because this is not worthy of something that is refreshing to me on a hot day or cooling to me on a, or a, or warming to me on a cool day. It's not something that heals. It's not something that brings comfort. It's not something that brings satisfaction or refreshment. It does none of those things. Instead, it's stuck right in the middle. And the reason it is, is because this church looks at themselves as the answer. This church is looking within. Look how great we're doing. Look how great things are going within me. And they think this is going to offer a faithful witness to Jesus. Absolutely not. And so the church in Laodicea didn't think that they had any serious needs. They boasted, no, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And their boast may have been that they were in good spiritual condition, or you know, possibly more likely that they, they might have believed that their healthy spiritual welfare was indicated by their economic prosperity. And this actually has a little bit of Old Testament uh, background here. And I'd just like to read a short passage from Hosea chapter 12. Um, The Lord is speaking against his people for some of their own attitudes regarding him and regarding themselves. And here's what, um, what we read in Hosea 12, 2 through 8. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. 
he will repay him according to his deeds. Now, this kind of reminds me of Jesus saying, you know, I know your works. I I know what you've done. I know the things that you are a part of. Verse 3, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Now, a couple of things that I just want to point out briefly about this passage. And the first is that God is telling them, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. The Lord is telling the people, by my help, I want you to come back to me. I want you to return to me. I want you to repent, as Jesus will identify to the church in Laodicea. But he's saying, I'm going to need to help you do this because you are really, really caught in what you think is evidence of your greatness and of your goodness. But then in verse 8, um, or I'm sorry, in verse 7, he, the Lord comes right out and says, or Ephraim says, which is just um, you know special language for Judah here, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. And Ephraim here has made the exact same leap that the Laodiceans have made. They have decided that because of their wealth, because of their riches, I have found wealth for myself, right? I, have, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, was the Laodiceans' boast. And now Ephraim in Hosea 12 is actually saying that because of these efforts, because of me finding wealth, because of me obtaining riches, they can't find in me iniquity or sin. What he's saying is, the evidence of my economic prosperity is proof that I am a spiritually rich person. Look at this evidence. Look at the testimony. Look at my outward manifestation of my greatness and of my glory. Never mind what might actually be on the inside. And so what Jesus is addressing to this particular church, and he calls them to repentance, but what it's interesting is that he tells them, you know, you know, their attitude is one of arrogance. It's one of self-sufficiency. It's one of I n- need nothing, right? We, I've already said need nothing might even include not needing Jesus. But they view their material wealth as evidence that they are spiritually wealthy as well. We must be doing everything right. Look at how wealthy we are. Look at how self-sufficient we are. Look at how much money's in our bank. Look at how advanced we are with this ISAV. Look what... And I want to draw your attention into Revelation chapter 3 for when Jesus says to them in verse 17, for you say, I have rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You know, the three things that Jesus identifies for this church, um, buying from him gold, refined by fire, 
white garments so that they may clothe themselves and they will not be ashamed, and then salve to anoint their eyes so that they may see. I've already shared with you in the introduction that this particular city prided itself on its banking and its commerce, i.e. its wealth. They were in the textiles of making black woolen garments, which is what they, they boasted of themselves in. And then finally, with their medical school and advancement in ophthalmology, pharmaceutical advancement, a Phrygian powder that they used to make eye salve. These elements were the elements that this city boasted about its greatness in. We're the people who can see the best. We're the people who have the most medical advancement. We're the people who are the most independently wealthy. And here Jesus is addressing this church and he is saying, the things that you claim make you rich are actually your poverty. If you don't know your need for me and you don't need me for anything, then despite how much money you possess, you in reality are poor. Now, there's nothing new about what Jesus is saying here. He, in fact, if you think back to the church in Smyrna, the poverty-laden church in Smyrna, Jesus called rich. And here, the wealthy church in Laodicea is actually spiritually poor. He says, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, poor, blind, and naked are not the terms that anyone in Laodicea would ever use to describe themselves, and yet they are not testifying to the greatness of their city or to the greatness of themselves. They are called to testify to the greatness of Jesus. And if they exist as a self-sufficient church who in reality does not need their own daily bread, from Jesus because they already have it, not to mention the next 10 years worth of daily bread, then they have nothing to testify to in the world. They have nothing to be a lampstand for if they do not need Jesus. And I know this is an incredibly fine line between Christians' lives. They want to you know, work hard. They want to make money for themselves. They want to you know, protect and provide for themselves. But there are moments in life where we come to think about our own sufficiency and our own ability to bring about these things can and sometimes does cause us not to trust in Jesus as much as he wants us to. And so he calls on this church to be zealous and repent. And he tells them, despite the fact that I want to spit you out of my mouth, despite the fact that what you are doing right now disgusts me, despite the fact that, and I would add this, that even in our own culture, it is sometimes very despicable to look at the self-righteous, the holier-than-thou, the people who portray themselves as being better than everybody else because of how well they do at everything or how much money they have or how big of a company they've successfully you know, created. We tend to look at those kinds of people and be disgusted by them ourselves. But I want to highlight for you what Jesus says to this church because he does not write them off. He calls them in the same way the Lord called the people of Israel in Hosea 12 to return to him. Jesus calls this church to repent, yes, but he addresses them as, in verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus' love here is staggering, if you ask me. 
Um, he is able to look at this church, this self-sufficient church who clearly does not need him at all in their own minds and say, I love you. I died for you. I want this church to be a thriving place to be. I want to dwell in your midst. But right now you don't need anything, including me. But I want you to know that as much as that disgusts me, as much as I want to spit that kind of attitude right out of my mouth, I want you to know and I need you to know that I love you. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I point out the error in the hearts and in the lives of the people that I love. The people that I don't love, I don't take the time. But for you, my chosen ones, the people that I laid my life down for, the ones that I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I want you to turn. I want you to know your need for me. And right now, your self-sufficiency is what you need to repent of. And then Jesus tells them in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone open, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is not, as it is oftentimes used to describe, um, an evangelistic verse. Um, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. You need to let him in. That, that, that's actually not the picture. Instead, the picture, if you remember and keep in mind, right, this is a Christian church. These are believers whose self-sufficiency has gathered themselves around the table to the point where they are doing church without Jesus. <laughs> They've constructed it. They've crafted it. They don't need any outside help. This church prided themselves on being able to rebuild their entire city without help from the emperor. It is so easy to see them doing the same thing here. We will build this church and we don't need any outside help. Jesus, however, in Matthew 16 reminds his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If we try to build the church and we try to do the things that Jesus is calling us to do, hell most certainly will prevail against it. And unfortunately, you see that happening in the world today. And then you see people throw their hands up and say, I thought Jesus said it wasn't going to let that happen. If he builds it, it won't happen. If we try to build it, it most certainly will. And so Jesus has to remind this self-sufficient, grandiose, excellent, powerful, incredible church I'm the one who needs to come in and fellowship with you. You need to repent of your self-sufficiency and your belief that you do not need me. I am standing here desiring fellowship with those whom I love. And you've locked me out. You don't even let me be a part of this. So I am inviting myself back in, but you need to hear my voice. You need to hear my call of love. You need to hear my call of discipline and rebuke, and you need to open the door, and you need to let me in. You need to acknowledge that you need something from the outside that is going to fill you with what you need to be my faithful witnesses. And then he ends in verse 21 by saying, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who repents in the midst of this kind of thing, 
I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also sat down with my father, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And this is the picture. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, this is the seventh and final time, of course, where we have heard about to the one who conquers, the one who conquers, I will this, and to the one who conquers, I will that, over and over and over and over. And we've talked about the word conquer. We've talked about how it means to overcome, to be victorious, um, to continue to follow Jesus despite what difficulty each church is facing. But it will not be until chapter 5 in Revelation where we fully get the idea from Jesus himself about what it actually means and what it actually looks like to conquer. All we know at this point, and this is the best one we've been given so far, is that Jesus said, I will you know, grant you to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so what we do know about how Jesus became king was not with a self-sufficient, I've got it all figured out myself kind of attitude. In fact, Jesus himself said, I can do nothing unless the Father shows me what he's doing. I do nothing unless the Father reveals to me something. Like Jesus exercised a life full of absolute dependence, even all the way to death on a cross. And this is why Paul will remind the Romans in Romans chapter 8 that, you know, if you are children, then you are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so part of what I think it means to conquer and to sit down with Jesus on his throne as Jesus also conquered and sat down with his father on his throne is going to have a lot to do with suffering preceding glorification. It's what Paul just said in Romans chapter 8, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. The Laodicean Christians wanted to jump straight to the glorified. Hey, Jesus is the king. He's given us all this great wealth. Look at this as an example of our faithfulness to him. Look how self-sufficient we are. And they bypassed entirely the struggle that every other church needs to face in the midst of Babylon to rightly proclaim the life that Jesus lived. And this is why Jesus addresses this church with the phrases that he uses He calls himself the amen, you know, it is true. These words are true, right? The amen, this is a a statement we will make. Let it be so at the end of a prayer. This is Jesus. He's the, 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 the punctuation, the ending point, the faithful and true witness. This is wrapping up once again what he wants all churches to be based upon himself as the faithful witness from, from chapter one, verse five, and then referring to himself here as the beginning of God's creation. Jesus is, in fact, the firstborn of all creation. He's bringing in the new creation. And as such, and as we saw to the church in Philadelphia, the open door, the opening and and paving of the way for the kingdom of God, this is what Jesus has come to begin. He's come to bring in the new creation, and he wants the Laodicean Christians to repent of their self-sufficiency, And to know that even for the smallest things, they need Jesus. 
They need the faithful and true witness. They cannot witness to him without thinking that they need him. This is where so much of, I think, the Christian faith in our culture is, is completely misguided, is that we think we've got a few things figured out, we have a few doctrines that are good and right, and our job is just to stand up and boldly proclaim those, come what may. Yeah, but we need Jesus' faithfulness, and we need Jesus to correct the attitudes in our fallen hearts, and we need Jesus to give us compassion and kindness for the lost. And we need Jesus to be the hot water springs from Hierapolis and the freezing cold springs of Colossae to offer satisfaction and comfort and healing and refreshment to a hurting world. Not to offer them the things that we've got within ourselves, which is lukewarm and tepid and satisfies no one. You and I need Jesus. The church, in order to be effective lampstands in the world, need Jesus. We need the faithful and true witness so that we can be witnesses to him. That's the way this works. And as the final letter that Jesus addresses, these themes that we've seen all the way through, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, these are the different themes, the different challenges, the different obstacles, the different struggles, the different strengths, the different weaknesses that will always impact the church in every age and in every geographical location all through the history of the church. These are the challenges. These are the struggles. These are the exhortations. These are the encouragements. These are the rebukes. These are the strengths. These are the weaknesses. These are the things that the church needs to be aware of at all times and in all places in order to remain faithful to the crucified and risen Lamb. As we move into chapter 4, we will begin to see why these themes matter. And I cannot wait to continue to navigate our way through to ask the question, how do we remain faithful to Jesus as his witnesses despite what the culture throws at us? And what does it mean for Jesus to reign on the throne with his father and to invite us to join him there? What will it look like? What will our lives look like? What will it feel like? How do we experience it? Where should our eyes be set? What should we expect to happen? And so on. So that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Again, I'm thankful that you're continuing to tune in. We've made it now all the way to chapter 4 in Revelation. And I don't know how much longer it will take us to move through it, but I hope that you're finding each episode helpful or encouraging, maybe clarifying even. Um, there will be a lot more fun discussion to have as we get into some of the complicated um, symbolism and things that are coming in the chapters ahead. But I hope that you're going to continue to track with me and please offer feedback whenever you feel um, that you'd like to do so. Until next time, have a great week.